I do believe creativity is a team sport, especially when you're trying to create the type of solutions that break new ground, that have tremendous scale and look to push the world forward in ways that benefit everyone. Better products and experiences take more than just great engineering and design teams to materialize. They rely on collaboration across disciplines, from marketing to legal to human resources and beyond. In season seven of the Design Better podcast, we'll be exploring what it takes to make work more collaborative, creative, inclusive, and impactful throughout your organization. Along the way, we'll learn from our guests how to raise the collaborative intelligence of your teams with insights from experts like Guy Kawasaki, legendary Macintosh evangelist, and Nir Ayal, best-selling author of Hooked and Indistractable. This podcast is hosted by Aaron Walter and Eli Woolery and is presented by Envision, a transformative collaboration platform for all the work you do. Discover more best practices, research, and resources for free at designbetter.com and insidedesign.com. There's probably no better training ground than Nike to learn about creativity as a team sport. And Greg Hoffman, the former chief marketing officer at Nike, shares this lesson along with many other valuable insights in his new book, Emotion by Design. In this episode, we chat with Greg about how his childhood shaped the way he thinks about creativity and collaboration how working in inspiring spaces can influence your work and how you might accomplish that in a remote environment and about curiosity as a catalyst for creativity. So lace up your running shoes, check those earbuds, and get ready for an inspirational conversation with Greg Hoffman. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy tools and weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Craig Hoffman, thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Look forward to the conversation. So, Greg, you've got a new book out. It's called Emotion by Design, and we're going to dig into that a bit today. But before we get started, I would be remiss if I did not ask you, what shoes are you wearing today? You know, I have a pair of Air Max 97s, silver and black. And I just have a general rule. Even if I'm on Zoom from my own home, you have to be wearing shoes. (laughs) Right. I mean, you owe whoever's on the other end that respect. And believe me, I love being comfortable. 
But there is something about lacing up uh, a pair of favorite sneakers that just signal that you're ready to go. So game ready, as they say. You flip-flops count as shoes? Because that's kind of my yes, normal. No, flip-flops. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that counts for okay. sure. The bare feet, you know, <laughs> might be close to that. Craig, before we, we dive into the book and your career at Nike, you've got so many interesting stories in the book about the projects you worked on and some really interesting folks that you collaborated with. But the book starts with your origin story growing up in the Midwest, something I know well because I grew up in Iowa, Nebraska, and Missouri. You grew up in Minnesota, and you've got one parent who's white and one parent who's black. And growing up black in the Midwest, it can be a challenge. I know that firsthand, just close friends growing up black in that space. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that was like being in the Midwest and being an only so often, and then ultimately how that kind of shaped who you are today? Yeah, no, definitely thanks for the question, because I think so much of who we become is shaped in those early years and shaped by resiliency and adversity and how we respond to it. So I am uh, half black, half white. My birth parents were in high school, right? And so not to date myself, but you're talking about 1970. So two high school kids of different races having a child, that's pretty challenging, right? So thankfully I, I was put up for adoption and adopted by my parents who are white. And so grew up in a family, loving family that was white, and then went to an all white school system. That's pretty challenging. You know, my first school experience, early grade school, you know, I was told that the KKK was going to come and get me. And that's a hell of a thing when you're told that, you know, men in white hoods and white sheets are going to come and get you and repeated each day. And I only share that because back then, parents, teachers, adults were taught to not see color. That's what was, you know, love sees no color. And that's kind of growing up in the Midwest, which was predominantly white. There wasn't a lot of empathy for the experience of people of color, because as I said, you're taught not to see color as an adult. So I kind of experienced that racial adversity, if you will, on my own, because I really didn't have the individuals to talk to about it. As challenging as that was, and you know, there are many other instances as I grew up there, what it did do is it started to shape my peripheral vision, if you will, which quite frankly is so important to the discipline of design. Because what happens is you start to look out for others that may also be the only person in the room and people that might be outsiders that might not have the invitation to be part of the club or the community. And so the great thing is, is that I grew up at a brand, Nike, where I was able to exercise that empathy for others, not only within the company, but also the solutions that we created, whether it's products or experiences or communication and just reach people that oftentimes didn't have access to the type of innovation and inspiration that everyone else has. So albeit a challenging beginning, with that said, a lot of that ended up fueling part of my success and certainly I think helped me be more 
thoughtful and empathetic as a leader, knowing what that feels like at the, you know, sometimes most severe level. Say more about that, how it fueled your success, because that's pretty interesting. Did you feel like adversity in some way, like you're forced to rise to the challenge? Yeah. I mean, two things can happen, right? You can retreat, you can kind of become really closed off, or you can, you know, it becomes fuel. Not all chips on the shoulder are bad. I'm not saying one should carry around a lot of negativity from their life journey. But with that said, I do believe you can channel it in ways that can have really positive outcomes, both personally and professionally. And so within design and within marketing, that means you're showing up in the room representing people beyond maybe the core audience that you're serving, right? You're that representative in the creative process to ensure that what you create takes into account those that are in the minority. Greg, just shifting over to work and the work environment a little bit. Obviously, in the last few years, much of our work has shifted to either a remote or hybrid environment. You talk a lot in your book about how creative spaces influence how you work. Do you have any thoughts on how you might address that in a setting where employees might not be able to be in a shared space? Is there a way to be more inclusive of those people or you know, include them in experiences that might spur more creativity? Yes, I do believe that your space, whether digital or physical, should be as inspiring as the solutions that you look to create. Easier said than done in the virtual arena. I'm the branding instructor at the University of Oregon's Graduate School of Business, you know, the Lundquist College of Business. And I teach both in-person and virtual and both have their advantages and disadvantages. But what I would say is the virtual environment is in some ways more inclusive because it doesn't just reward those that are comfortable in real time providing their point of view or extroverts or people that maybe oftentimes dominate a room. The virtual environment, actually there's a variety of ways you can engage, whether it's through chat, whether it's verbally, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to put that out there that as challenging as it's been, it also allows folks from you know anywhere around the world to participate. Even your virtual environment from where you're sitting, it's like, you should surround yourself with your passion and your interests. Your curiosity and passion is what fuels your solutions. It's what fuels your ability to be a great teammate and contributor to the rest of the organization. And so it's important, I believe, to always kind of be surrounded and immersed with those signals and elements from your, your life on a daily basis that provide that level of inspiration. So whether you're just sitting in your bedroom or your living room, wherever you are, and again, it's hard because we kind of live these nomadic lifestyles, right? And sometimes people are calling in from hotels and different places. But I just think that we should never get complacent and accept bland surroundings. Certainly in our line of business, it's easy to do, right? It's kind of like a house that needs work, but you just accept it at some point and then you never do anything about it. 
because you just get used to it. You can no longer see the things that really didn't feed you, if you will. It's kind of a long, winding answer, but hey, that's I'm a nonlinear. <laughs> <laughs> thinker. So sometimes I'll take the uh, long way around, which I guess is another point, which is the linear path or the winding road. Both can lead to great results. So as we sit here and have these conversations, I can see the points of inspiration in your life, in your backdrops. I feed off that energy. I see your curiosity and, and your energy within the elements that you've chosen to surround yourself with. And I just like that. And isn't that what we're trying to do with those we serve through design? I love that. And it's funny because Aaron and I, when we were preparing for this call, we talked a bit about how do we bring that into our own spaces? And obviously everybody's listening and can't see this, but behind me, I have this mural that I painted with my daughter just to kind of liven up the boring basement wall <laughs> back of me. And then I surfboard because I surf a lot and then tons of books and stuff because I love to read. But maybe you could tell us what's in your space a little bit just to give the listeners a taste of that. You know, I love getting out in nature out here in central Oregon. You know, you're at 3,000 feet above sea level or more, if you will. Sometimes those elements can be pretty tough, but it's a nice day out today. And I just like to have nature, if you will, in my peripheral vision somehow, even if I'm online, because I take so much from it. And I like that feeling of being in an environment where there's something bigger than yourself, as nature can do. Not to mention all that we pull from nature, whether it's the animal kingdom or plants or what have you, especially within product design that we pull into our creative process that starts to inform the shape that these solutions take. So that's kind of what I have today is just uh, the windows as a backdrop and just knowing that I'm kind of in the wilderness, if you will, or the high desert in this case. So Greg, you're talking about being close to nature and that kind of changes your behavior, changes your feeling. And we could extrapolate that out to the things that we purchase and bring into our space, into our life, that we interact with on a regular basis. And that's the crux of your book, that intersection of emotion and design. Could you tell us a little bit about your philosophy, about how you think about that and how we might use design to shape emotion? I think we should always be asking the questions from both a rational and an emotional point of view and use the filters for both. You know, on the one hand, we're solving a problem. Like what's the functional benefit? What is the need that we're satisfying? And really that's that rational pursuit. But oftentimes we're not asking enough questions about how we want someone to feel along that design journey. And it's really easy to ask those questions you know, asking the question of how do you want someone to feel about themselves and their ability to achieve their dreams and aspirations when they wear this product, when they're in this designed environment, when they receive or exchange these stories with you or your brand. I feel a little bit right now, and the reason this book is a call to arms is because I do believe in some ways that the relationships between brands and people and audiences is becoming a bit automated. And maybe it's 
dominated a bit by the science of brand building, but that the art is being squeezed out. And the point is, is it's not an either or, it's both. Branding is a process of art and science, and they need to multiply each other. I believe those are the brands that ultimately play a greater role in the world and in people's lives. And so in Emotion by Design, I lay out a series of traits and principles that allow you to lean into your creative practice and really analyze and have conversations about emotion and being able to create the type of work that stirs emotion in people in the deepest way and brings a brand away from just being transactional. And at the end of the day, to say you're a brand that has strong, deep relationships with consumers, that has to mean that emotion is deeply embedded in that relationship and that creativity and the creative practice and the creative disciplines that are responsible for creating those products and those experiences and those stories, it's paramount to support them and lean into those because at the end of the day, it's those practices and those individuals and those teams that are oftentimes responsible for that emotional bond, not only for it to form, but also to strengthen over time. So if I can say one last thing there is it's important, whether you're a small business owner, a startup or an established brand, the question is, if brand building is an art and a science, does the art still have a seat at the table at all levels of your company or not? At Nike, when you were creating a new product, creating some sort of an experience, maybe a store or even a video film, various types of things that you would create, would you articulate, hey, this is the emotion that we want to invoke in people? This is the emotional experience we're trying to target as the starting point for the creative conversation? Yeah, I like to think of a brand's personality as a mosaic, just like ours are. We're all composed of a variety of different traits and the tones in which we express our voice as a brand, whether it's through the product or through story or through experience, we can be intentional about that. And so, yes, oftentimes as someone who had to oversee storytelling for the brand for a number of years, you know, being very deliberate about which emotions we wanted to express as a brand or characteristics. Because as you know, if you kind of come across and use the same tone of voice every single day, it may be that that becomes somewhat boring and annoying. Just like if your products lack a level of distinction from one another or personality. Because to me, products and even architecture communicate, or they should, or the team working on them should ask the question, what do we want this building to say to people as they approach it? Is it welcoming? Is it inclusive? Is it inspiring? Oftentimes when you see architecture that's somewhat ominous, or intimidating, well, those questions haven't been asked. It might be really interesting and breathtaking from a formal standpoint, but it didn't get into the emotions and those questions about how you want people to feel about working there or walking 
buy it. And so I think great products, great architecture, and great services, service design, I believe does that, goes through that process of saying, well, these are the types of emotions we want to express. And in return, we hope we instill this level of confidence within those that experience these products. And at the end of the day, what does this all mean? It means you're empowering people. To me, to empower people to achieve their aspirations, you have to have those conversations within the process. And as we all know, hey, in my own career, early on in my career, I wasn't asking a lot of those questions, right? Yes, I was doing early form design thinking. I was doing scripting journeys, et cetera, et cetera, before it became, you know, the term design thinking came out. But I wasn't necessarily getting into the, how do I want to make people feel? You know, how do I want to empower people? What's the movement that I'm asking people to join when they either lace up this product or they kind of come to this event or they walk into the store? What am I now a part of beyond just a one-way conversation? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Hey, everyone. We hope you're enjoying how Greg Hoffman thinks about creativity as a team sport. Before we get back to the show, 
we want to take a minute to talk about how Envision can help inspire more inclusive creativity and collaboration across your teams. Envision's collaborative canvas freehand makes everything from wireframing, brainstorming, retrospectives, and even getting feedback for the next episode of this podcast easier, impactful, and exciting. With hundreds of templates built for and by your peers, as well as smart widgets and integrations with the tools you rely on, Envision helps you make your workspace work better for you. And with Spaces, you can bring all your team's workflows together in one place. Create a simple, safe, single source of truth for your team by placing Envision documents, external files, and useful links inside your spaces. No more wasted time, lost files, or crossed wires. So if your company is looking for a single place to come together, get organized, co-create, and push work forward, check out Envision at www.envisionapp.com. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back to the show. In your book, Greg, you talk a lot about creativity as a team sport. And I think, you know, sometimes as designers or marketers, we may sort of shoulder the burden as being the creative people in the organization or impose that ourselves. But I think the way that you frame it is really powerful because I think the most inclusive teams that bring everybody into the creative process have the most success. And there's sort of three principles that you outlined as part of that. You talk about embracing the daydreamers, letting the quiet voices speak the loudest, and that diversity is oxygen and uh, the importance of diverse perspectives. Maybe you could talk a little bit about each of those three pillars. I do believe creativity is a team sport, especially when you're trying to create the type of solutions that break new ground, that have tremendous scale and look to push the world forward in ways that benefit everyone. You need that mindset. And when I say team sport, it's not just those you know, with creative in their title and those that are responsible for the application of design. The whole organization needs to support that pursuit, whether they're technically involved in it or not. Does everyone embrace the artistic pursuit and the design journey, even if they're in a department that isn't practicing that? So that's one. And then two, if I can just elaborate on that, is that everyone has creative capacity in that, although the application of creative ideas is reserved for those that oftentimes have fluency in disciplines that have been forged over time, whether you're an architect or a film director or a writer, you name it. But the coming up with ideas, that's something everyone can participate in. And having been someone who's led hundreds of brainstorm sessions over the 27 years or so at Nike, you know, I never started a brainstorm session where I asked, you know, everyone that wasn't creative to leave, you know, and shut the door on your way out. No, the whole point is left and right brains, analytical thinkers with daydreamers sitting side by side. And that's the multiplying effect. And that's what I always looked to do. It's not about creating a meal with too many chefs in the room. I'm not talking about the application of the idea. I'm talking about generating ideas to address maybe, you know, just talking about this idea of the creative dream team. And, you know, it's interesting that in 1992, when I drove out to Nike in my parents' van, you know, that was the year of the dream team, which 
you know, some of your listeners are too young to know, but this was the first time in the history of the Olympics that NBA players could play. So you had Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson all on one team, and it was labeled the dream team. And I always remembered that. When I think of the creative dream team within the world of brands, what my call to arms, if you will, and, and what I emphasize with companies is that oftentimes there's groups that don't quite fit into the traditional organizational structure. Embrace the daydreamers. You know, These are the individuals that oftentimes hate the status quo. They're always looking out into the future, thinking about what's next. And back to that idea of right brain thinkers that don't always think in the most linear dogmatic process, but embrace them because they may drive you mad. <laughs> but at the end of the day, if you give them the space and you coach them versus manage them, because sometimes managing means you're going to manage all of their eccentricities out. And those are the very things that are their superpowers. So that's kind of that embrace the daydreamers. Let the quiet voices speak the loudest, you know, introverts. It's like, well, if you're only rewarding those that have the answer right away in the room every time, man, you are leaving out an abundance of opportunities and ideas. And oftentimes introverts just need the time to process what they've heard. And if you give them the space and open the door back up, they'll come back with some pretty amazing things. And history shows that some of the greatest innovators of our time were, were all introverts, right? And then, of course, finally, and we talked a bit about this in the beginning, is, you know, as I say, diversity is oxygen. It's what breathes life into the creative pursuit. And so it's getting people to understand that diverse representation in and of itself by the numbers doesn't mean you've achieved diverse representation. The whole point is that you are activating people's life experiences and perspectives and you are allowing them space to bring that into the workplace. This life that they've had as a person of color or all walks of diversity, by the way, bringing that into the room along with this high performing diverse team is able to have a greater ability to see beyond the simple observations and assumptions that oftentimes we get locked into. Well, why is that? Because they've had the experiences where they're looking for more. They're looking deeper. They understand how to peel back the layers because they've had experiences that a lot of others haven't. And isn't it incredibly powerful when you bring together a diverse team like that? It creates what I call in the book, this vision advantage, which is really a competitive advantage because you're able to see what others see, but find what others don't, which is really important at the beginning of any creative process because you're trying to get to an insight or a truth that oftentimes is invisible. And the products and stories and experiences that don't go deep enough upfront, oftentimes what comes out in the world isn't as profound as it could be because you didn't go deep enough, you didn't dig deep enough, and the team you had was a team of sameness. And so everybody's looking at the same thing through the same eyes. So this is something that everyone can practice and support. 
and be an ally for. Certainly it's the, in my opinion, the lifeblood of our creative practices of the future. Greg, what'd you learn from working with Kobe Bryant? Well, I thought I was a naturally curious person, but Kobe takes that to a totally different level and the greatest creative partner we ever had. And the fact that off the court, he was so curious about the world and really represented this idea of being a lifelong learner. And the fact that he took so much inspiration from emerging technology, from the world of art, from entertainment. And it wasn't just that he was pulling all these sources of inspiration. Anytime we sat down with him, whether it was a design meeting or a marketing meeting, we would get to be on the receiving end of all of these elements and things that he had seen and experienced. And he would share that with us. Your solution is only going to be as strong as back to that starting point. Like what's the truth or insight? And then what are the points of inspiration that you're bringing into the room? And that's kind of where you're starting. And so every time we sat down with Kobu, we started each campaign or each art directed photo shoot or logo development, anything that we created started from such rich insights and so many great points of inspiration. And he was just very generous in sharing that. Not to mention, you knew how committed he was to his craft, you know, to the highest degree. And so what an incredible standard to set for you to follow. And so I guess the long story short is oftentimes instead of we as the brand team educating him on the latest and greatest tools and platforms and capabilities, it was actually the other way around. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I just think he's so greatly missed, but uh, the impact he made on us at least in the creative functions, I think everybody is just better for it. Who kicked your butt the most? You know, so much of my career followed the rise of an introduction of all these social platforms, whether it was YouTube in 2005, you know, people take Instagram for granted now, but you're talking about not coming into the world until around 2012 and everything else in between there. So what that means is, you know, when I think about, well, what was most difficult, it was ensuring that you were leading from the front, that you were seeing out on the horizon, these emerging ways to create stories and reach more people in a more conversational way. And that you were integrating these into your creative offense along the way. Back to this idea of complacency is the enemy of creativity. There was no taking any plays off. How could you? The pace of, of new development in digital products, the acceleration is amazing. And look what you see today with NFTs and the metaverse and Web 3.0. And what I developed to help us through this, these revolutions, if you will, is a rapid visualization capability where we could literally visualize solutions on a daily or weekly basis of conversations like this that we're having. And I still today feel it's one of the most important things 
an organization can do is have an individual or a team or an agency partner that can take your conversations that you're having and turn those into images, turn those dreams into reality. And the way to start that is to create a picture of the end in mind. Because as you know, it's overused, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And it's absolutely true. How many times have you had the same conversation multiple times in a year and no one can figure out like why it hasn't advanced? Why did we never do that? And then the next year comes and it's like, yeah, that was pretty cool. Why didn't we do that? Well, you can solve a lot of that by walking out of those meetings and having a capability where people create a visual of that vision. It's a rallying cry, if you will. And that gets back to emotion again. That's why I say in the book, what's the movie poster of the idea? Movie posters are designed to hook you and give you just enough information and engage your emotions just enough to pique your interest that oftentimes you're on board and you're hooked and you can't wait to see that. And so that's really important to me if you're going to be a brand that delivers innovation on a consistent basis, especially within the world of marketing and communication. Greg, you mentioned you love the outdoors. And I'm curious because for me, you know, getting out and surfing or, or diving really does factor into the way that I approach my own work and that it sort of gives me the headspace to let ideas kind of <laughs> cycle through. And I'm curious, first of all, like, what do you love to do outside? And then second, how does that factor, if at all, into the creative work you do? No, it's a great call. I mean, a lot of it's mountain biking, hiking, and snowboarding, especially out here in Bend, Oregon. And oftentimes, you know, nature is for the most part free. It's free inspiration. And so I love just over the last two years that, you know, maybe there's communities that didn't feel they had that invitation or exposure. And now you have brands that are like the North Face and others that are kind of reaching communities that didn't kind of get the benefits of the great outdoors so or see themselves in it or, or see people like themselves out there because it's got to start there so yeah i mean do you have the space within your day are you allowed to daydream either in the workplace or are you protecting time outside of the workplace sometimes that can just be on a treadmill it can be on a walk but it's just making sure you have some quiet space. Like you said, when you're surfing, it's like some of these endeavors, it's dangerous not to be focused specifically on a moment. So trust me as someone who's, you know, had a couple of bike crashes, I know, but I like working through the creative problem solving process while I'm out and about, you know, you're away from maybe a lot of the energy that quite frankly, is limiting you from achieving your best because maybe you're locked into a variety of activities that actually aren't serving what you're ultimately accountable for, which is creating something that has meaning and value, hopefully, in people's lives. There's a great story in the book where Coach K, the, the famed Duke basketball coach, walks into a meeting and share some choice advice. Could you just recount that for us and what you took away from that conversation? Yeah, it was quite common because it's Nike and it's the world campus that you'd see athletes, coaches, our teams kind of out and about like on campus. 
But we were having a mar- our weekly marketing meeting, which was, I think, every Monday. And everyone was really, really busy. So as you come into a meeting, you're trying to pick the right seat because you need that extra time to come up with your update. And, you know, and it wasn't that people were immature. They were just really, really busy, right? So everyone settles in and we start the updates and the door just burst open and, and walked Coach K. And I think people were just blown away. And, and the first thing he did after he just said hi, he just looked at all of us and he said, your eyes. He said, your eyes are your advantage. He said, as a marketing team, you're able to see things that others can't see. And honestly, with that, he said, thanks for everything you're doing and uh, left. And I have to, I have to preface, like, I was not a fan of Duke. I'm, that's an <laughs> understatement. I was a huge UNLV running Rebels fan from the late 80s, early 90s, and just still a bit heartbroken that Duke beat them that second time around. But, you know, what he's saying is it gets back to a bit of empathy and curiosity as the two most important traits during at least the first part of the creative process. He's saying that your eyes, your collective peripheral vision to look beyond just what's on the surface, look beyond those assumptions and observations and find something and reveal it in an interesting and creative way that has a profound impact on people and culture. So that idea of your eyes are your advantage and they only can be if you're using them to go beyond what's just in front of you, what's just at face value. You're digging deeper and time and time again, Nike has used its collective vision and eyesight to unearth the truths within sport and the athlete experience and bring those to life in ways that just have really inspired and empowered all types of people. That's the power of sport. It has the power to just unify so many of us and kind of get beyond our own differences. So yeah, it's a small story, but it's one that's really important because it just once again demonstrates how important curiosity and empathy is to the creative pursuit. So I just have one sort of two-part rapid-fire question for you, if you're game. First one is, where can people find your book and follow your next endeavors, if you could talk about that? And then what's inspiring you right now? Is there anything you're reading, watching, listening to, anything outdoors that's particularly inspiring to you right now? Yeah, well, I can be found at, I mean, there's a couple of places. Emotionbydesign.co is the book website, but the book can be bought in audio, paperback, hardcover, or digital book at any online retailer of your choice. It's been inspiring to see a lot of the smaller bookstores in different cities carrying the book. You're supposed to say you can get it from Powell's. Well, okay. So now we're talking. Got to represent Portland, right? I love a good bookstore, let me tell you. Um, In some ways, the smaller, the better, right? The more intimate and more packed it is, the more I get out of it. You can also reach me through my brand advisory website, which is themodernarena.com on that. That really is about, you know, my work there. It truly is helping brands not only achieve strong business growth and brand strength, but 
change the world at the same time. So how do you achieve that business growth, but also have a profound impact on culture? And then follow me on my Instagram at ghoff70. And you can see you know, what I'm up to, certainly regarding the book, as well as I'm very open <laughs> about my sources of inspiration. The page is just loaded with that. A lot of it does come from travel. There's a lot of architecture on that. You know, I've just been thankful to get the opportunities I've had to kind of go around the world and engage those passions. What inspires me today is like, oh, and there's a lot of things. I mean, certainly I think we're in the golden age of, of cinema. When I say cinema, whether it's the small screen or the large one, and just all of the great storytelling, and I want to be clear here, not content, storytelling. <laughs> okay. The word content is overused. Just all the great stories that are being told by both old and new voices and talent is really inspiring. I'll end with this. I just think there's some remarkable work that's going on to bring not only more diverse representation into these creative disciplines, not only bring them in, but empower these. And I just look at the One School of Creativity. It's a black online free portfolio school for black creatives looking to get into the advertising industry. I look at Andreessen Horowitz and what they're doing with the Talent and Opportunity Fund to really empower and provide services to people of color that oftentimes have you know, a tough time getting funding, like the majority of folks, institutions, brands, and individuals that have achieved a position in the world that are using the moment to really lift others up. I just, I'm totally inspired by that. And I use that as a model for my own life. It's fantastic. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the day. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio and brought to you by Envision. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or simply drop a link to the show into your team's Slack channel. It'll help others discover the show. Need tools to raise your team's collaborative intelligence? Visit envisionapp.com where you'll find a single place to come together, get organized, co-create, and push work forward. And visit InsideDesign.com and DesignBetter.com, where you'll find our library of free eBooks, audiobooks, videos, and articles about foundational concepts of design and business. Until next time.